everyone. I'm Amanda Humphreys, and I'm with my classmates, Drs. Katherine Banning and Andrew Golden. And the theme of our journal club is examining dogma in emergency medicine. If you've ever wondered where some of the time-tested dogmas that you are instructed to follow come from, we hope to answer some of those questions today. So first up, let's talk about epinephrine in digital nerve blocks. Safety of Epinephrine in Digital Nerve Blocks, a Literature Review, is a review by Jonathan Alicki looking at the safety of epinephrine primarily in digital nerve blocks for anesthesia of fingers and toes. This is a review of studies previously published in several databases, such as PubMed. They ultimately reviewed 39 articles, including prospective and retrospective studies, an in vitro analysis of cadaver vessel response to epinephrine, and several case series. As the theme of this journal club was addressing dogma and emergency medicine, I wanted to point out that this article did a good job of highlighting where this dogma came from. The idea that epinephrine is dangerous in digital nerve blocks came from 50 case reports between 1889 and 1948 that described finger necrosis following digital nerve block. Note that more than half of this time frame falls into the pre-antibiotic era, which to me makes me question the relevance of this information. Furthermore, half of the cases were digital nerve blocks without epinephrine, suggesting that it can't be the main culprit. Anyway, the results of the review were that the only cases of digital compromise were due to confounders such as tourniquet use. They did not find any instances of digital necrosis in digital nerve blocks performed with epinephrine. These results were limited by the fact that many of the studies were not actually designed to determine epinephrine safety. However, they reported safe blocks as a secondary outcome. Furthermore, many of these were performed by hand or plastic surgeons in the operating room and not in the emergency department. However, they were performed for wound care or repair, just as they are in the ED, suggesting that it is still likely relevant to our population. However, the most significant limitation, in my opinion, is the fact that patients with concern for impaired digital circulation, specifically those with diabetes, hypertension, and peripheral vascular disease, were excluded from most of the trials. There were some trials that included these patients. However, that data set, though still suggesting that it is safe, is much more limited. And as we all know, this encompasses a significant portion of our patient population. Ultimately, I would use this data to back up my decision to perform digital nerve blocks with epinephrine. I will, however, take peripheral vascular disease, such as my diabetic or hypertensive patients, into consideration and may not use epinephrine in these patients, depending on how severe these disease processes are. Hello, my name is Andrew Golden, and I am one of the third-year emergency medicine residents at the University of Cincinnati. One of the classic dogmas of the practice of emergency medicine that has recently been brought into question is the home use of tetracaine for the treatment of pain associated with simple corneal abrasions. Traditional teaching has indicated that the use of tetracaine in this setting can lead to delayed healing of the corneal epithelium or a number of other complications. Most of these findings, though, have been found in studies of animal models or with long-term topical anesthetic use. One of the studies to challenge this dogma was a study published recently in Academic Emergency Medicine in 2014 by Waldman et al., which we'll be talking about today. It was entitled, Topical Tetracaine Used for 24 Hours is Safe and Rated Highly Effective by Patients for the Treatment of Pain Caused by Corneal Abrasions, a Double-Blind Randomized Clinical Trial. 
So a bit about this article. This was a prospective, randomized, double-blind trial looking primarily at complications associated with tetracaine use for the first 24 hours of treatment of uncomplicated corneal abrasion and corneal foreign body. Secondary outcomes that were analyzed included both pain relief and perceived efficacy of the study drug. The study was performed at a single site in New Zealand, and patients were ultimately included if they had simple, uncomplicated corneal abrasion from mechanical trauma or from ultraviolet keratitis or from removal of a foreign body. There were a number of exclusion criteria. Probably the most important of these are those patients that presented more than 36 hours after their initial injury or had an injury that required urgent ophthalmologic evaluation, things like an open globe, large or complicated abrasions, or injuries that significantly disrupted their vision. Patients were also excluded if they had injuries to both eyes, wore contact lenses, or had previous eye surgery or cataracts. Patients were enrolled using a convenient sample and were randomized using block randomization. They were given an envelope to open at home, which included instructions, a pain questionnaire, paracetamol tablets, and the study drug, which was either unlabeled 0.9% saline solution or preservative-free 1% topical tetracaine. They were instructed that they could use the study drug every 30 minutes for 24 hours, and they were also encouraged to take one gram of paracetamol four times throughout the day. All patients were also given 1% chloramphenicol antibiotic ointment, which is probably different from most of our practice environments, as this is not our standard antibiotic ointment that we prescribe for most patients with corneal abrasions. They were instructed to record their pain score on the visual analog scale every 30 minutes for two hours after leaving the ED, and then every two hours for the next 48 hours. Patient follow-up is probably dissimilar to standard practice in the United States. So they note that it was standard practice in their setting to return to the emergency department in 48 hours for reassessment, and that ophthalmology clinic appointments were reserved for complicated cases. At 48 hours, patients were assessed for fluorescein uptake and had a replete slip lamp examination performed by an emergency medicine physician. There were a number of predefined complications in the study, which included things like delayed healing, enlarging abrasion, corneal stromal infiltration, and candidal and bacterial keratitis. Finally, participants were contacted at one week and one month to ask similar questions about complications or complaints, such as dry eye, red eye, or persistent vision changes. The researchers didn't keep track of how many patients were eligible for enrollment, but they suspect that there were 390 patients who were ultimately eligible during their time period. They enrolled 116 patients and were hoping to enroll 126 based on their power calculation. 59 of those patients were randomized to the tetracaine arm and 57 were randomized to the saline arm. While the authors indicate that they had no patients lost to follow-up, the actual follow-up rates were extremely variable. The 48-hour return visit only occurred in 69% of patients in the tetracaine group and 64% of patients in the control group. A total of 11 patients were found to be non-compliant, and this was likely underreported as the patients were not asked to keep record of how or when they used their treatment medications. The results showed that there were no complications related to tetracaine use identified in this study. The authors did indicate, though, that based on a calculation of binomial probability confidence interval, the complication rate could be as high as 6.1% based on the study size and the fact that they did not see any complications in their population. Similarly, there was not a statistically significant change in healing as defined as fluorescein uptake between the groups at 48 hours, as both were between 21 and 24% having persistent fluorescein uptake. 
Unfortunately, there were also a large number of patients that had persistent rust rings identified at their 48-hour visit, and the data of these subjects was excluded from the trial as any persistent symptoms that they experienced could have been related to the rust ring or the tetracaine itself. Regarding the secondary outcomes of the study, there was no significant change in visual analog scores of pain between the groups. The participants in both groups actually experienced significant reduction of their pain to less than 10 millimeters on the visual analog scale at about 12 hours and approach zero at about 24 hours. Interestingly though, patients in the tetracaine arm indicated that they felt their treatment was more effective than the placebo arm, and this finding was statistically significant. I'm honestly not quite sure what to make of that, given that their pain scores were similar and that they had no changes in wound healing, so there wasn't a clear explanation for why they felt it was more effective. The authors of the article posit that it may be related to placebo effect um, from the burning sensation of the tetracaine drops or related to the short half-life of tetracaine not causing a change in the actual pain scores. Of course, there are a number of limitations to this study. It's a single-center study with pretty significant differences in standard of care from the United States, at least those in Cincinnati, so its generalizability is somewhat questionable. Some patients may have also been unblinded to their treatment, as tetracaine, as most of us know, causes a distinct burning sensation that patients would have been familiar with during their emergency department assessment. This may have caused the phenomenon of increased efficacy that I mentioned before. Patient compliance was also not measured or directly assessed. Finally, another limitation involves the use of emergency physicians to diagnose the complications that I previously discussed related to poor healing. Honestly, my experience with a slit lamp is much more limited than an ophthalmologist, and I would not trust myself to definitively diagnose some of the complications associated with prolonged tetracaine use. We actually already saw this play out in this specific study, as two patients were removed from the study because they were diagnosed with with conjunctivitis, and three were ultimately removed because they were diagnosed with large corneal lacerations. I think this study does show that the use of tetracaine for the first 24 hours of treatment of uncomplicated corneal abrasion or foreign body is probably safe. While we'll not review other studies on this topic, most of the newer studies would agree with this conclusion. The question of whether it improves pain scores is equivocal in this study. Other recent publications, again, indicate that topical anesthesia likely does improve pain scores, but at least based on this publication, there was no significant change in pain scores between groups. Currently, I do not prescribe tetracaine for patients with corneal abrasions, and I honestly don't think this publication will necessarily change my practice pattern too much. The pain associated with corneal abrasions improves significantly in the first 24 hours after treatment, even without topical anesthesia. I think I may be less cautious to give it to patients who are in excruciating pain related to their ocular trauma without the concern that I'm going to be impairing their wound healing. But ultimately, we need a larger randomized controlled trial that will be powered to assess the impact of tetracaine on pain control to help answer this question. Thanks, Andrew. My name is Katherine Banning, and I am also one of the third-year residents here at UC. Continuing with the theme of challenging accepted dogma in emergency medicine, the next paper we reviewed challenged the doctrine that beta blockers should not be given to those with chest pain from cocaine usage. This study was published in Emergency Medicine Journal in September 2018 by Pham et al. and was a systematic review and meta-analysis to evaluate the safety of beta blocker therapy in patients who presented with cocaine-associated chest pain. As we all know, beta blockers remain a class one recommendation in those with acute coronary syndrome who are not in cardiogenic shock in both American and European cardiology guidelines. However, one group that is excluded from these recommendations has historically been those patients with cocaine-associated chest pain. 
We all know that cocaine is a widely abused stimulant, leading to excess catecholamines that stimulate both alpha and beta receptors, resulting in systemic vasoconstriction, tachycardia, and increased myocardial oxygen demand, which can result in severe hypertension, myocardial infarction, and sometimes death. Traditional teaching recommends against the administration of beta blockers in this patient population due to the theoretical risk of creating unopposed alpha-adrenergic stimulation, leading to coronary artery vasospasm. This paper points out that these recommendations were based on case reports and animal studies from several decades back. No large clinical studies have been performed to look into this issue. With that being said, if you look up the present ACC and European guidelines, the use of beta blockers in cocaine-associated chest pain is still a class 3 recommendation, meaning that the treatment is not recommended and may in fact be harmful to the patient. Interestingly, a study was published in 2014 in American Journal Cardiology that reported up to 85% of cocaine-positive patients from the National Cardiovascular Data Registry were given beta blockers. So how do we reconcile these recommendations with what is actually happening in clinical practice? Multiple studies have been performed looking into this very issue. These studies were often limited by small sample size, short durations of follow-up, and they were single-center studies that had mixed results. Because of all this continued controversy, the authors of the paper we are going to talk about had conducted a meta-analysis specifically focused on the safety of beta blocker therapy in those with cocaine-associated chest pain. They started by conducting a literature search using both Medline and Embase to evaluate for relevant studies up until September 2016. In order to conduct their search, they used terms such as cocaine, beta blocker, and what I think was a nice touch is they also included the most commonly used beta blockers, including atenolol, metoprolol, esmolol, carvedilol, etc., considering there is not a standard beta blocker administered to patients with ACS. Eligible studies for inclusion were based on five criteria determined by the authors, which included one, the study design was either retrospective or prospective trials since no randomized control trials have been performed. Two, the patients were adults greater than 18 years of age. Three, the symptoms were consistent of chest pain suspicious for ACS. Four, cocaine usage was defined by positive drug screen or self-reported use. And five, the outcomes of the studies were looking at either non-fatal myocardial infarction or all-cause mortality. Because of this, the study only focused on patients presenting with chest pain, rather than the other side effects of cocaine intoxication, such as hypertension, stroke, etc. The authors originally found 580 potentially eligible reports. However, excluded studies included animal or non-human studies, case reports, observational studies, review articles, studies that did not focus on chest pain, studies that did not report outcomes of interest, as well as studies that did not compare beta blocker or non-beta blocker therapies. So once all of these reports were excluded, the authors were left with five studies to include in the meta-analysis. Of these five studies, there were 1,756 patients who met inclusion and exclusion criteria. Baseline characteristics included mean age, sex, race, hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, hyperlipidemia, HIV, congested heart failure, lung disease, and serum creatinine. When comparing the two groups, the authors found that patients with more comorbidities were often the patients who received beta blockers. These patients were also older and consisted of more African Americans. Those who did not receive beta blockers were those patients with underlying lung disease. Male sex and HIV patients were similar among both groups. All five studies reported rates of non-fatal myocardial infarction. When looking at all these patients, beta blocker use in the setting of cocaine-associated chest pain was not associated with a statistically significant difference of non-fatal myocardial infarction compared to the non-beta blocker use, with rate of 15.4% to 14.1% respectively, with a p-value of 0.39. The other outcome of interest 
all-cause mortality, was addressed in three of the five trials, including a little over a thousand patients. While the mortality rate was lower in the beta blocker group compared to the non-beta blocker group with rates of 1.7% to 3.3% respectively, this was also not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.43. This study in general highlights both the lack of data on this topic as well as the lack of consistency among practice patterns, as this is the first systematic review and meta-analysis looking at this controversial issue. With that being said, there were a number of limitations. As a systematic review, these results have been influenced by publication bias, heterogeneity among the studies, and lack of access to the primary patient data. From a meta-analysis standpoint, only five studies of 580 were included, and all studies were retrospective, non-randomized studies, which means they are subject to selection bias. Also due to the retrospective nature of the studies, it is hard to say for what reasons the patients received beta blockers, specifically whether they were given for hemodynamic or arrhythmia purposes versus chest pain alone as intended by the authors. There was also a lack of information in terms of what beta blocker was used, what route and what dosage. This made it difficult to delineate outcome differences amongst different beta blockers. Lastly, it was pointed out that the urine drugs testing for cocaine remains positive for 48 to 72 hours, making it difficult to determine timing of cocaine ingestion to when the beta blockers were administered. However, I agree with the authors that the urine drug screen is used routinely to determine cocaine usage in the ED and ICU settings as when, and was an appropriate inclusion criteria. So how does this information change our practice? Thinking back to my two and a half years of residency, I'm not sure if I have ever given beta blockers specifically for cocaine-induced chest pain. In talking to some other providers, it seems that most people will still start with benzos for acute cocaine intoxication. In terms of thinking of when beta blockers might be used, there may be more of a role in tachyarrhythmias, which was not looked at in this paper. I also think there is a role for beta blocker use in those left with a cardiomyopathy from their stimulant use, as this remains a gold standard, but this seems less applicable to the ED populations. Even with this information from this study, I feel I am more likely to start with benzos, vasodilators, or an alpha and beta blocker for like labetalol for hypertension rather than the beta blockers included in this study.